This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We turn now to your health, maybe your child or your grandchild's health. At least 200 students have fallen ill with what is believed to be a case of norovirus. Toronto public health officials believe that's the cause of the outbreak at Humber College, but they're waiting for lab tests to be sure. So what is the norovirus? How contagious is it? And who is at risk? We're on the line with Dr. Allison McGeer, an infectious disease consultant at Mount Sinai Hospital. Hello and welcome. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Okay, so uh, what do we know about this very uh, scary outbreak at Humber College? Well, noroviruses fortunately aren't don't cause very severe illness in almost anybody, but they do make you really miserable, um, and they're very infectious, um, so that you get big outbreaks, as the one at at Humber College, and they happen mostly in the winter. Uh Uh-huh. And why is that? Well, nobody really knows. There's been an interesting study, actually, from the University of Toronto that norovirus actually survives in cold water better. So it might actually um, do better in the winter because it survives better. It uh, might also be that we spend more time together in the winter so that viruses are more easily passed from one person to the next. Um, a, a list of different options, but um, really it's, it's just empiric evidence that the biggest risk is December through March. Okay, and I always thought that norovirus was airborne, but it, it can also be passed in food, correct? That's right. We we don't actually know how norovirus gets from one person to the next. It probably goes in the air, on the hands, through droplets, um, lots of different ways it can get from one person to the next. But if somebody's shedding norovirus and they prepare food, then the norovirus can also get into the food um, and cause cause a foodborne infection. So it's like a food poisoning outbreak of norovirus. Wow. And uh, is that that's exactly what people are suspecting, correct? That's exactly what people are suspecting. It can be difficult to distinguish between a food poisoning outbreak where a toxin gets into the food that gives you nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, or a virus gets in it. And that's why we've heard that Toronto Public Health is waiting for lab tests because those lab tests will distinguish those two things. And that makes a difference to their investigation of what might have gone wrong and whether something could be done to prevent this from happening again. Um, but from the, from the perspective of people who have it, it's pretty much the same. It's a disease that starts usually very suddenly. You just feel terrible and have vomiting or diarrhea, and it lasts usually only for about 12 hours. And then for the next day, you feel really tired and miserable, and the day after that, you're pretty much back to normal. Okay. Uh, And uh, is there a treatment for it or you just have to get through it? You just have to get through it. So So nothing is offered? 
No, nothing is offered. Some people, very small children who can get dehydrated rapidly, and older people who can, when if, if they have too much vomiting or diarrhea, can get imbalances in electrolytes or, or become very dehydrated and not be able to drink. Those people sometimes need an IV just to get hydration back to them and their salts balanced properly. But for essentially all the rest of us, it's just getting through it. Uh huh. And um, what is the risk? I mean, you mentioned older people. Uh, our demographic is an older demographic. Are they at more of a risk? They are just because not generally healthy older people uh, are fine and can tolerate getting dehydrated or having an electrolyte imbalance, but people who have underlying illnesses, people who are already on medications that can alter their electrolyte imbalance can get um, quite seriously ill with it. And in very elderly, frail people, it, it can actually occasionally be fatal. And uh, what are some of the medications that people um, that you mention here, just to give people an idea if they should be on guard? Well, if pe- for instance, people have, if you think about a disease like heart failure, where the heart doesn't pump very well, you're often on medications that already cause your body to be, to dry out a little bit, to keep the fluid out of your heart. And some of those medications, for instance, cause your potassium to be low. If you then have vomiting and diarrhea on top of that, particularly if you can't take your potassium medication that you need, that can get you into trouble. Uh-huh. So again, what are, some, what are the name of some of those meds? Well, so there's a there's a very long list of them. I'm not sure that I I can't oh. give you a common list. So they're they're medications called diuretics that keep fluid out of your body. Okay, and uh, how contagious is it? Uh, it's very contagious. So we we worry a lot about it in in nursing homes and in hospitals because it's so easily passed from person to person, and it's not uncommon in households to have usually a child is is who starts it, and then it passes from person to person. The good news is that about half of us are relatively immune to it. So one of the real difficulties with norovirus is that you can get it once, and you're protected then for five or six months, but after that you can get it again and again and again. Some of us are protected almost all of the time. So we respond differently in some way to the virus. And when we've had it once or had it a few times as children, we tend not to get it. Um, That's about a third or a half of people, but the other half of people just keep getting it. And is that a genetic thing? Well, it must be, but we don't know what we no Nobody's figured out what the genetics of it are. And certainly... Um, in families, oh, oh dear, often not everybody who who is protected. So if it's it's probably something very subtle in the in the genetic line. And so, uh, you know, what is your advice for somebody who's come into proximity with this? How should you lessen your chances of getting it? Well, it, it, if, if it's somebody outside of your household, then your chances of getting it are not actually very high. And, and your protection from it in the winter is just like your protection from influenza or other respiratory illnesses. You want to wash your hands five times a day. You want to remember that to stay home when you're sick because you're hoping that other people will do the same. Um, you want to be really careful to wash your hands after you've been to the bathroom because bathrooms can be contaminated with the virus. Uh, but most of the time, if it's somebody outside your household, the the risk is pretty small. And once you've been exposed, there's nothing you can do about it, so there's no point in worrying. Really, though, is a marker of if you start to get diarrhea or vomiting, go home. 
Um, get get out of people's way. Stay away from other people so that you won't pass it on to them. Okay, uh, let's take a call from Andy in Palmerston. Hi, Andy. Hi. Uh, I feel that this thing, if you're vomiting, go home. That's not good enough. I feel that our health system in regard to examination procedures is obsolete and outdated. And it, what does it take four or five days to find out what it is? And I, the reason I'm telling you this, is this is one of the failures in our system. We got an excellent health system. We got excellent equipment to direct blood disorders, but we're not, we're not doing what we should be doing. And I could recall in Waterloo, a, a student from the U.S. came to the, went to the uh, a doctor there or the clinic, and they said, oh, you got the flu, and they sent her home. And you know what? She died of meningitis. And there's no reason that the hospital has to send its blood test to some other place, that there should be a blood testing lab right in the hospital, and you could do it in uh, half a minute and find out what's wrong with the person. Well, the, I think the, that's our failure. Um, I'll let uh, Dr. McGeer respond to that. But with some tests, uh, the reason that it takes a while is they have to be cultured and stuff. Yeah, that, well, there's a whole variety of reasons, but our caller points to something that is actually really important. We're just at the threshold of getting much better, much faster tests, and it's one of the things that's been identified, particularly for dealing with antimicrobial resistance, that we need to figure out ways of getting these tests closer to physicians and the patients they care for. I think in the next... 10 or 15 years, we'll see a big change in that. And, and as your caller points out, we will all really welcome that. It's a little bit difficult now because they're still expensive tests, and we want to be very clear that we're using them in the most efficient way possible and in ways that will actually increase people's health and not just add cost to the system. Um, but it's a, it's, it's a very prescient comment. It is the the what we call point-of-care diagnostics, getting rapid diagnosis to the bedside is something that is very important that we really are focused on. Um, why, why is it taking so long to get these lab results? Well, it, it is... It's a little bit hard to comment in this particular circumstance. You know, one of the things that happens is a lot of these students are sick, but many of them won't have seen the doctor. They'll have seen different doctors. Different laboratory tests will have been ordered. And frequently, as, as our caller has just pointed out, you can make a diagnosis of food poisoning or norovirus when you look at a patient, it doesn't matter to that patient which one it is because by the time you see them, they're usually getting better anyway. So frequently on a clinical basis, physicians won't order a lab test because it's not going to help them. In this circumstance, doing a lab test isn't going to make any difference to the people who are sick. It does make a difference to Toronto Public Health in terms of their investigation of how to better prevent outbreaks in the future. So a piece of it is about the fact that this is... And until you, until you recognize that there's an outbreak um, and Toronto Public Health gets involved, you aren't actually going to ask for diagnostic testing because it's not that relevant to each of the students who got sick. They just they just want to get better, which um, so but, so are they will be by now. Are they relying on tests that a, an individual doctor might have ordered, or have they gone in and ordered their own tests? Well, they'll have gone in and talked to doctors about coordinating the ordering of tests, but that that. Obviously, that takes a little bit of time and organization. Uh-huh. Okay. I think I'm getting it. It's a little more complicated uh, than, it, than it sounds then. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's really, you know, the, we've also heard from people saying that uh, the dining room in residence wasn't as clean as it should be. Uh, could that have been a factor? 
No, probably not. Usually what happens in these settings is 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 just the unfortunate thing that there are some people who get this infection who don't get sick with it, um, or, but who have very, very large amounts of virus shed in their stool. And if one of those people happens to be somebody who's preparing food, even if there's very good practice, you can still get contamination of food. So it, it isn't actually even that something went wrong. On the other hand, um, uh, you know, as, as we all recognize, when things go wrong, it's a really good time to look at everything you do uh, and try to make sure that you, you, everything that can be improved is improved. And in anyone's life, there are always things that can be improved. So, you know, from the point of view of the of food preparation at, at Humber College, it's a really good opportunity to review everything that they do. Not necessarily true that they did something wrong. However. Well, it's, it's interesting because, uh, you know, I heard some students and some of their parents kind of saying that that would be the problem and they didn't trust the kids, uh, the, the food at the residence. But, you know, my recollection is that uh, when you live in residence, you complain about the food in the kitchen. <laughs> Well, that maybe I, I all of us have to complain about something in life, I guess. Um, but I, yes, it, I think, I, and and we need to wait and find out what it is that Toronto Public Health thinks went wrong, um, if anything, in the system. It, it, I, I'm assuming that there are multiple different sources of food on campus, so it's probably even too early to suggest that uh, we know that it was a particular food source on campus. Okay. Um, we only have uh, about a, a minute left, Dr. McGeer. Uh, so just to, to go over again what we should all be doing to protect ourselves. Well, you know, from norovirus, it's really simple. It's called cleaning your hands, and that's at the end of the day, you should be able to remember that you've washed your hands at least five times. It's about being really clear that you wash your hands after you go to the bathroom, uh, and it's about staying home when you're sick so you don't pass it on. And uh, does using a hand sanitizer, does that cut it as a hand washing? It probably does. There's an interesting and complex argument about noroviruses, but it, it likely doesn't matter whether you use soap and water uh, or whether you use a hand sanitizer. You, if you're using a hand sanitizer always, it has to be one of the ones with alcohol in it. The other hand sanitizers do not work as well. Um, but those hand sanitizers with 60 or 70% alcohol in them work uh, as well as soap and water. Mm-hmm. And, and people out there, if you go on YouTube and you look up the correct way to wash hands, uh, I think it's a lot more extensive than what most people do. That's absolutely true. We all tend to cut back on, we, we cut short how long we wash our hands. You really want your hands in the running water for 15 seconds, which doesn't sound long, but it's very long um, if you count it while you're washing your hands. And, and sort of uh, cleaning between your fingers. Yep. <laughs> all righty then. Dr. Allison McGeer, thank you so much for that. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> you're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.